Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Throughout 2023, we brought you stories from our Folkways reporting project. Folkways focuses on arts. My granddaddy was a tombstone maker down in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he started telling us about Facejoy. It was an ancestor. They said she made Facejoy. It was a family history. Culture. I'm really passionate about taxidermy. I think at my core, I just love it. It's what I was meant to do. And the spirit of Appalachia's people. There are old mushroom hunters, and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. First, this news. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we're sharing stories from our Folkways reporting project. Folkways wraps in stories from reporters across Appalachia, all about arts and culture and how those things are passed from person to person. Let's start with a story about music. From the city of Salem, Virginia, just down the mountain from me. Tom Olmson has been around music his whole life. His uncle played trumpet in jazz bands and got him his first tape recorder when he was just a kid. We got a, just a basic uh, quarter-inch uh, reel-to-reel recorder with, with a cheap microphone. When Olmson went to college, he started playing music himself, mostly bluegrass. Ended up picking up the mandolin because I had a roommate who uh, had a, just an old mandolin he kept in the corner, and he never played it. Around the same time, he got into college radio. That gave him a chance to practice his recording skills with bluegrass musicians. Those people were demanding that somebody mix them according to the protocol of bluegrass and old-time music, and I just happened to be in that world. That led to bluegrass musicians making regular visits to Olmson's college radio station, where they'd play live on air. We started getting some name groups coming in the studio and doing just live uh, two-track recordings. We were getting... Bands like the Seldom Scene, you know, got to meet Bill Monroe. Uh, he allowed us to record one of his sets at a local festival. And Ralph Stanley got to know him fairly well. Olmson eventually opened his own recording studio. First in his house, then in a space in downtown Salem, Virginia. He catered to local bands and to bluegrass musicians who knew Olmson would record them properly. Then one day, Olmson got a call from the owner of a Roanoke-based sound and event company. It turned out a Charlottesville promoter was looking for a quiet, out-of-the-way place for a band to record an album. But there was a catch. Olmson had to keep it a secret. They tried to record at a studio in Charlottesville, and the recording was going okay, but there was such a buzz going on that they couldn't get anything done. They were just, crowds of people were showing up because it was a local sensation. So it was kind of this undercover thing for six or eight months. And that's how the Dave Matthews Band ended up at Flat Five. They recorded between 150 and 200 hours that would become part of their debut album, Remember Two Things. Remember Two Things was released in the fall of 1993. Soon after, Dave Matthews' band exploded in popularity, becoming one of the defining acts of the 90s. And that, in turn, made Flat Five a hot destination for bands hoping to make a splash. I was swamped with regional and local bands. I was working six and seven days a week, but, uh, you know, I felt like I had to do what I could do with it while the demand was there. Along the way, Flat Five became one of Western Virginia's premier recording studios. Olmson just kept rolling with it, until a few years ago, when he started to think about retiring. Last year, I turned 68, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to be here at 75. So Olmson made plans to pass the studio to a new owner, but not one who'd do things exactly the way he had. Instead, he zeroed in on one of his employees a part-time engineer named Byron Mack, 
Like Elmson, Matt came from a musical family. I am the nephew of the jazz singer Jane Powell. Um, my grandfather is the one that got her into music. His name was Eddie Powell. Um, I'm third generation musician for my family. But while Olmson got into bluegrass, Mac was all about rap and hip hop. His aunt Jane encouraged him to pursue it. As a 17 year old, I was writing rhymes and she found my rhyme book and had a bunch of profanity lace stuff in it. Just, you know, young kid writing crazy stuff. But she was like, hey, if you clean this up, I'll let you come out and, and rap with my band. And that's where everything started. Jane Powell did more than give her nephew a chance to perform. It got to a point where it's like, man, we need like our own beats. And we couldn't get anybody to like, you know, hook us up with any beats or anything. And so my Aunt Jane bought me my first beat machine for my 18th birthday. Mac was still living at home with his mom, but he was already starting to produce music. Like Olmson, he started with a makeshift studio in his house. To tell you how small things were, like, I had, <laughs> I slept on a mattress, and I would, like, literally take that mattress out of the walk-in closet so the artists could have room to go in and record their song. And then when they get done, I'd slide the mattress back in the closet <laughs> the room was so small. Mac's hustle and initiative eventually put him on Olmson's radar. In 2005, Mac went to work at Flat Five. Olmson says it was a good fit from the start, and not just on the technical end. Very good handling clients, and uh, you know, smooth over ruffled feathers. <laughs> Mac says Olmson started talking to him about retirement in 2018. It took another four years to close the deal. But finally, in 2022, Mac became Flat Five's new owner. He's expanded it to incorporate more of his work in hip-hop and R&B. Of course, being a hip-hop artist, um, I've been able to bring in some more hip-hop elements that didn't exist before. I still do graphic design, website design. Uh, we really try to make it a one-stop shop for an artist so they don't have to go anywhere else. He's continued to work with Flat Five's old clients. But he's brought in new artists, too, especially hip-hop artists. Olmson told me he thinks that's the studio's future. That's not to say it's all been easygoing, even with Flat Five's long history. There's still you know, a few people around that have come here for years, but it's still a new business. You know, I'm new. There's, there's new elements to it. But then again, Byron Mack's been working as a music producer for decades at this point. Just like Tom Olmson. He started at home before moving up to Flat Five. He wants to keep building and turn the studio into a destination for musicians across the East Coast. My long-term goal for Flat Five is to be that go-to spot when you had to travel through Southwest Virginia. And in doing so, Byron Mack is keeping Tom Olmson's vision and the craft of music production alive and thriving. I'm the best of the beasts here. I'm working, keep requesting the feature. They call me king of the mountain. I'm investing in my region. Keep my nest eating my daughter. Her the Folkways Reporting Project launched at West Virginia Public Broadcasting in 2019 to boost awareness of folk traditions and practices that have been handed down or continued for generations, like wild food foraging. Gathering foods like ramps, sassafras, or blackberries from the forest has always been a part of Appalachian culture. In recent years, mushroom hunting has been having a moment, with fungi enthusiasts headed to the woods to seek out their favorites. Folkways reporter Wendy Welch spent time with some of them in Virginia and West Virginia and brings us this story. It's an overcast but hot morning, and I'm in the backseat of a car on the way to hunt for mushrooms. Mushrooms have been so hot lately, they might be like the superstars, you know? That's Amy McLaughlin. Her husband, Sean Means, is driving. We're talking about the mushrooms that are featured in the hit show, The Last of Us. They're called cordyceps. In the show, cordyceps mutate and eat people's brains. In real life, they don't do that, at least not to people. Uh, there are mushrooms that are parasitic, and they do have the same name, uh, the genus, as the ones in that, uh, that show. But 
at this time, we do not believe that they will uh, inhabit human bodies. Well, they do take over bugs. <laughs> bugs. Yeah, they absolutely do. Cordyceps. They get inside of the bugs into their nervous system and they do take over them. When the fungus is ready to produce the fruiting body, it kills the bug and comes up out of the bug. Wow. Sean and Amy are West Virginia master naturalists. They run a boutique vacation rental called Lafayette Flats in Fayetteville, next to the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve. They lead ecotours for people who stay in their flats, pointing out unique flora, fauna, and fungi in the area. If you want mushrooms in your life, there are two main paths to follow, farming or foraging. Misidentifying a fungus to use as food or medicine can be lethal. So foragers tend to hunt in packs until they're experts. Experienced hunters like Amy and Sean teach the newbies. As we disembark, Sean quotes a proverb known to every mushroom enthusiast in America. There are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters, but there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. In other words, it's a good idea to be careful when hunting fungi. The couple lead me into the forest. Birdsong fills the air and dry leaves crackle underfoot. Which is a bad sign, Sean points out. Mushrooms proliferate after rainfall. A mushroom, known officially as a fruiting body, is the smallest part of a larger living organism that needs a lot of water and can cover miles all out of sight to the human eye. You're in the woods and you see the trees and you see the mushrooms. And then if you just stop and think, the vast majority of the fungus is underneath us, you know? And just think about that for a minute, like the dark, the dark soil, the earth underneath us and that huge organism that's under there that's pushing all the fruiting bodies up. I think that's fascinating to think about. There are also mushrooms that grow from wood rather than soil. But today we're hunting chanterelles, which do grow in the ground. It's not going well. I don't see any mushrooms at all. Chanterelles would have been easy to spot had any been around. They're popular for teaching new foragers because of their bright yellow color and distinctive fluted edges that make them look like a tiny trumpet. They're hard to mix up with any other mushroom, but not impossible. There's one called a jack-o'-lantern mushroom, and it doesn't really, I mean, once you learn the difference, it doesn't look anything like a chanterelle. It has very different characteristics, but it's kind of the same collar. So if you were a newbie and you just were, you know, going through the woods and saw that collar, it's possible you could get excited. And, and those are poisonous. They're, they're not gonna kill you, but they're gonna make you sick. We find the target of our hunt after just a few minutes, but it's a disappointment. One chanterelle, and it's old. Not every mushroom hunt is successful. After another fruitless half hour, we leave the woods. Lucky for me, Sean and Amy have promised to take me back to their house and cook up some mushrooms they've already foraged. In their well-appointed kitchen, decorated with mushroom art, Sean hauls a double handful of fungi foraged yesterday from the fridge. When I find out the plan for eating the chanterelles, though, I briefly consider making a run for it. Sean cooks down the little fluted trumpets in butter until they're lightly crispy, mixes in a small amount of honey, and serves this over vanilla ice cream. And now we eat. It turns out that chanterelle ice cream sundaes are actually very tasty. Oh, good. <laughs> Wasn't it good? Mm. Mushroom hunting with experts is also a rare treat. But if learning to identify the roughly 2,500 species that grow in central Appalachia feels daunting, Try mushroom farming. It's safer, simpler, and less subject to the vagaries of rainfall. To homegrow mushrooms, all you need is a log or a cardboard box and some spawn. Well, we are mushroom farmers for eight years, um, but originally we started on log and uh, buying spawn and inoculating logs, and then moved on to buying spawn and growing uh, oysters and straw. That's Ben Harder. He runs Denhill Farm and Fungi in Christiansburg, Virginia. The farm offers workshops on cultivating fresh mushrooms, and business is booming. One of his most popular workshops teaches people to inoculate logs with spawn, also known as mycelium. Inoculating a log means drilling a hole and pushing the mycelium into the wood. There it will feed and be fed in a symbiotic relationship, taking in carbohydrates from the log, then pushing out B vitamins and minerals like potassium through the fruiting body. 
I caught up with Harder while he was vending at the Blacksburg Farmer's Market, and he shared his personal interest story into mushroom farming. I started a vegetable farm. I was a horticulture student. Things were going all right, but uh, one day at the farmer's market, a Appalachian Trail thru-hiker that happened to live in Blacksburg was coming through, and they were trying to sell these shiitake logs that they had inoculated so that they could finish the Appalachian Trail. It was amazing to see this log that probably had a pound and a half or two pounds of mushrooms growing out of it. It just kind of blew my mind that if mushrooms were taking this waste product, a log worth you know nothing but firewood, and making a high value retail product out of it. You know, they're making something out of nothing. And so he sold me the logs. Uh, that year I killed them because I left them inside a barn and they dried out. But the next year I started inoculating logs. And from there, it's kind of been a steady growth. In just a couple of years, they went from vending 100% fruits and vegetables to 40% produce and 60% fungi. Their best seller home growing method isn't logs though. It's a countertop kit. Doing the tabletop farm or the mushroom fruiting block on your counter, it's really quite the experience. It looks so beautiful. It's like a living bouquet. Countertop box kits were everywhere during the pandemic, and they've stuck around. Harder sells bags of spawn you put in your own box. Walmart sells cardboard blocks full of specific spawn. Stash the open box in a dark corner of your kitchen counter. Keep it wet but not soaking, and in a couple of weeks? You can just kind of see it come, and then when it says prime, you get to just pluck off the mushrooms and eat them. And they even last a while uh, in the fridge. You can keep them for a week or two. Uh, so it's a lot of fun and like a learning experience to see how mushrooms work and be able to get to do it again in two weeks because most of them fruit again. It's a, it's a real blast. And educational. Den Hill sells the bulk of their fungal products to families with young kids. It's really been amazing uh, seeing the youth, especially like five to 12 year olds that are really showing interest in coming out of the woodwork. Mushrooms tend to capture young imaginations for many reasons, not least because they capture environmental toxins. When Harder explained this to me, his enthusiasm was infectious. When mushrooms eat toxic chemicals like <laughs> plastics or oil spills, like oyster mushrooms can live on an oil spill, clean it, and produce safe mushrooms to eat. It's really incredible. Harder also delights in vegans and experimental chefs growing tabletop farms for the joy of eating those fresh fruiting bodies, sometimes as an alternative to meat. Two of the most popular countertop mushrooms are lion's mane, which tastes like lobster, and oyster, which tastes like mushrooms. When it comes to a kitchen kit, the world's your oyster. We probably have 24 different types of mushrooms in our like culture library that we're actively growing. The farming and foraging worlds aren't mutually exclusive. Most mycelium appreciation communities tend to be friendly with each other regardless of methodology. Harder thinks this is in part because mushrooms are so hyper-local. So I think mushrooms create community by having to be a decentralized system where cultures and strains and mushroom fruiting bodies can be sold and traded locally because of their lack of shipability and kind of regional availability. Kits bring mushrooms safely and easily into your home. For the thrill of a woodland hunt, don't go it alone, hunt down a mushroom club. They're prolific in Appalachia. Foraged or farmed, fungi can be fantastic fun. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Wendy Welch. Coming up, when floods devastated a West Virginia community, a songwriter used music to process trauma and encourage healing. Just seeing the way it did uh, all my friends, you know, like seeing all of that destruction and everything, it just had a big effect on me. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Well, Alan Cathead Johnston 
wrote this song about two horrific back-to-back unannounced 100-year floods that tore through McDowell County in the space of 10 months' time. It's been a couple of decades, but Folkways reporter Connie Kitts found that people are still drawing strength and comfort from this ballad. On the banks of the Elkhorn Creek in the little town of Kimball, Flood survivor Markella Giannato is making French fries at her little Greek-American restaurant called the Yasu. 21 years ago, not far from here, Markella saw buildings and debris and a mother and child being washed away. The ballad, Muddy Water, is still part of her healing from those events. Every phrase of that song is so real. And everything that he has said, I lived. You know what I'm saying? But the truthfulness in the ballad lyrics cut both ways for Markella. At first, it was very hard for me to hear it. I could not talk about it at first. I have had to have treatment for PTSD and so forth. Now it seems like it's just part of my heart. Markella uses the ballad story to tell her story when she talks to volunteer mission groups who come to the county to do repair work in the summers. The song plays alongside photos that Markella narrates. She opens the PowerPoint presentation on her laptop. Um, that's Richard Jones. That's the guy that rescued my dad. That part touches me, I think, the part of we wondered if it was ever going to end. Markella and her family were trapped for hours before rescuers reached them. And I call the presentation Forever Changed because it changed our town, but mostly it changed me. Even the line about hopes and dreams being washed away changed the way she looks at things. Well, it washes your hopes and dreams away, but they come back to you sometimes. Maybe different. And that different for her is this restaurant, not her father's original grocery store and not the sandwich shop she'd planned. But in the end, the Yasu restaurant is better. She's honoring the spot where her immigrant father started his dream, and the people of Kimball have a place to gather and hear live music on the weekends. In fact, the first time I heard the ballad Muddy Water performed was when Alan Johnston sang it here before the COVID shutdowns. Hey, Markella. Alan drops into Markella's restaurant sometimes for a burger. He's known her since high school. He's a bear of a guy with a long flowing beard and wavy hair down past his shoulders. He's dressed in blue jean overalls with a camo t-shirt. He grew up on Premier Mountain and he's been writing songs and singing his whole life. When he was about five years old, he sang the coal mining ballad 16 Tons in the grocery store. So they put me up on the meat case there and I'd sing it. You know, 16 tons, that must have been a sight. In fact, it was the grocery store boss who years later gave him the nickname Cathead when he found out Alan loved to eat those big Cathead biscuits. Music is in his genes. His grandmother played the clawhammer banjo and passed that down to Alan's father, a coal miner. Daddy, he was awesome. He was awesome on the clawhammer banjo and the fiddle. And he played the guitar very well. And uh, so every night when I came home from school, after I got my homework done and everything, it would just play music every night, every night play, play music. And, uh, and then he would give me a pointer or two, you know, he'd say, do that like this, you know, do that like this. Alan's main instruments are guitar and acoustic bass, but he also plays mandolin, banjo, fiddle, and keyboards. So when you hear those instruments in muddy water, well, that's Alan playing each one, and he sang. I'm not much of a singer. I got come up short on that end, but my daughters can really flat out what I call them, you know, are fantastic singers. The voices of both Jesse and Stacy are familiar to many in McDowell County, and Alan recorded a version of Muddy Water with each daughter. When it played on the radio shortly after the floods, it became the most requested song at WELC. Allen says he had to write Muddy Water. Just seeing the way it did uh, all my friends, you know, like seeing all of that destruction and everything, it just had a big effect on me. I heard Hank Williams Jr. say one time, um, you know, it, 
it's in him and it's got to come out. I believe if it's in you, it's got to come out, um, even if it's a splinter. People wanted CDs of the song. Alan thought about the old 45 RPM record singles. And there was two songs on it, front and the back, you know, A side, B side. And I thought, well, that's what I'll do. I'll kind of mimic that in a way. So he put two songs on a CD disc and made 50 copies using his own home studio equipment and supplies. And uh, before I could clock in, the 50 were gone. He said he had to charge something for them, so he sold them for $3 a piece. I ended up selling over 5,000 of them. You might call it Alan's version of the old-time ballad broadsides. It's the recording that circulated on the Internet, though, that Cynthia Cox remembers hearing. Cynthia grew up in North Fork Collar, about 10 miles east of Kimball. Her home was severely damaged in the floods, and they made the hard decision of moving to Blue Whale, where we met up. Logging rigs and 20-ton cold trucks are coming out of McDowell County and break at the traffic light on Route 52, where Cynthia is on her way to a house cleaning job. She's dressed in leggings, sneakers, and a light jacket. She's still deeply moved when she listens to Muddy Water. Um, even driving in the county now, uh, I still think at times like that happened yesterday and the people stay with you. The song stays with you. Um, just hearing the rift of the music in itself draws you in and then when you listen to the lyrics and you survive the muddy waters yourself, then yes, it, it offered comfort that we couldn't speak. And, and I still, I still tear up over that song. Some people blame the coal mines and the timber industry. The anger toward the timber and coal mining was real, and he spoke it when he sang it. He could say what we couldn't say. It leads her to talk about the economic and political struggles that still go on. It's not ended yet. Uh, you know, the news articles tried to capture it. The photographs back then tried to capture it but you don't really hear it and feel the story till you hear him sing Muddy Water. Like, how can it happen again, you know? So when you go on faith, like, okay, yes, I realize we're, we're not invincible from flooding. We're not invincible from um, any kind of natural disaster. You know, you don't think I might face a train derailment of toxic chemicals like the East Palestine train derailment until the things happen and it gives you insight to, yeah, we're not exempt from nothing, really. Yeah, we work so hard to put back what you took away before just to have you come and it all came. Ten thousand people cried, seven people died, and I could hear the devil laughing in the wind. So you need music, you need healthy outlets, you need a sense of community, even when devastation, natural disasters destroy it, you still need community. The therapy that came from his music helped us to grieve, which gave us strength so we could rebuild and regather to like, okay, we're either gonna stay down here or we're gonna have to move. When you're on the other side of it, you're like, we all survived. I commend those who were able to stay and at times I envy that. When once you're county, that's always home. It doesn't leave you. The people don't leave you. Sorry. But that's the community. Cynthia's love for her community and the power of this ballad reminded me of something Alan had told me. I had somebody tell me one time that uh, that must be a cool place to live because everybody writes songs about where you uh, live, you know, in Appalachia. He said, nobody's ever written a song about where I live. <laughs> I thought about that a while and I thought it is a cool place to live. I wouldn't live anywhere else. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Connie Kitts in Kimball, West Virginia.
lot of people are fascinated by the results of taxidermy. Whether it's a stuffed skunk on display at a park's visitor center or a big buck on a friend's wall. But some of us tend to be a little bit more uncomfortable with the process that goes into making these animal mounts. The preservation and mounting of dead animals has been around since at least the Middle Ages. But it didn't really become popular until the 1800s when hunters began bringing trophies to upholstery shops. Margaret McLeod Leaf has the story of one expert practitioner in Yadkin County, North Carolina. I feel a little apprehensive as I walk up to Amy Ritchie's workshop in Hamptonville, North Carolina, especially after hearing the message on her voicemail. Hi, you've reached Amy's Animal Art. I'm sorry you've missed me. I'm probably skinning a bobcat or sewing up the neck of a giraffe. Please leave me a message. I'll call you back as soon as I can stop and pull off the rubber gloves. Amy is an award-winning taxidermist. Her studio is located in her four-bay garage. It's large, bright, and airy, with about 150 deer antlers hanging from the high ceilings. Everything is neatly organized. On one side, power tools hang on a wall next to shelves filled with paints and adhesives. Over here is the giraffe corner. This, uh... The other side of the studio is a veritable zoo. A few giraffes, lions, armadillos, bears, coyotes, suspended in motion. They seem so vital, I can't help but reach out and touch them. They feel soft and real. I'm really passionate about taxidermy. I think at my core, I just love it. It's what I was meant to do. Amy grew up in rural North Carolina, homeschooled by her mom. She says that gave her plenty of time to follow her interests. That included animals, particularly dead ones. I started, when I was 13, I found a roadkill snake on the road and wanted to turn it into a belt. It was a king snake with a white chain pattern. I asked mom if I could have a knife from the kitchen to skin the snake, and she said, just please wear gloves so you don't get a disease. <laughs> Amy taught herself how to skin and tan it. I was able to find the information online, how to use glycerin and some different products from just the pharmacy to be able to tan that. And, and there I was, snakeskin belt. Amy admits she was an unusual child with unusual interests. I like being unique. I mean, why be like everyone else? And I never have been. <laughs> she says her dad also supported her interest in taxidermy. He had a second job delivering newspapers early in the morning. And he would find all the fresh road kills. So that's how he would bring home raccoons and possums and things for me to practice skinning. When she was 16, Amy says her dad encouraged her to enter a national taxidermy competition. Her entry was a red squirrel mounted on a bed of leaves as if it was sleeping. Amy competed in the open division. And even though she was a novice, she walked away with third place. She's gone on to win many awards over the years. Now at 36... She's a highly skilled taxidermist in demand. She makes her living mounting animals for hunters and collectors. We got some, the actual messy stuff going on. This is a wild boar um, someone brought in. The bones and bulk of the meat have already been removed. Amy starts by preparing and tanning the hide. She grabs a knife. We have to take this, um, this meat off, and so I'll hold the knife and work it down like this. It's fascinating and kind of satisfying to slowly shave this off. Amy is small, just over five feet tall. She wraps the exposed hide tightly on the edge of her workbench and scrapes the knife along the boar's hide in rhythmic motion. At this stage, the hide is stiff and unwieldy. It's hard. I can't even fold the hide. By the time I'm done, it'll be soft, and it will not take up as much space in my freezer. The freezer. A part of this tour that I've been most curious about. Amy has seven chest freezers. She opens a freezer lid, and I pull out one of about 50 gallon-sized Ziploc bags. Inside is something called a deer cape. Yeah. These are so compact, it's like a, a, a roast. Yeah, it's just the skin, and it's the head and shoulders of the deer, and wrapped up really tight. After Amy treats the hide, she crafts the animal shape. She carves muscles, veins, and bone mass out of a foam mold, like a sculptor. She sands the mold, applies adhesives, and wraps the skin around it. Then she smooths out irregularities before sewing it up with artfully hidden stitches. 
She uses glass eyes. You gotta detail the eyes so that they look realistic, so they have expression. And um, th those are those uh, things that separate, you know, just a hide assembler from an artistic taxidermist. Amy says when she was starting out, she didn't know many other women in the field. But she says that's changed in the past few years. And she's helping train a new generation through her Facebook page and YouTube channel. Hey folks, today we're going to do a repair video. And this is going to be involving a very common problem that I see with more deer caves. And now, through an apprenticeship. Oh, in conjunction with this wire brush helps Amy is helping her first apprentice, Mariah Petrie, carve a foam mold. They'll sand and apply adhesives before pulling a deer cape onto the form. Mariah started out as a customer. She came into Amy's workshop a few years ago to drop off a deer to be mounted, and the two hit it off. Mariah says she was a little uneasy with the work at first. Being an animal person myself, I was like, oh, my heart's going to get in the way. Will I be able to clean this cat? Because um, it looks like my pet cat in a way, just a little bit bigger. Um, and you get to uh, come to terms with things. After you do it once, it's, uh, it's just a motion you go through. Now she works part-time with Amy and hopes to start her own taxidermy business. She says her favorite part is breathing life into her subjects. I think it has been amazing how you can make a piece of foam with some clay look realistic. That is the start of everything, just taking something that looks lifeless and making it look realistic when you saw it out in the woods or a picture. Like Mariah, most of Amy's clients are hunters who bring in deer trophies or bobcats. Amy says she rarely hunts, though she doesn't have a problem with it as long as the animals are legally obtained. I'm here in the South where really, if you haven't seen a deer head or know what taxidermy is, you know, how, how are you even a Southerner? But Amy's most prized mounts are from a trip she made to Africa. They include the head and neck of an adult giraffe looming over 10 feet tall in her studio. Hunting giraffes is controversial. Amy says this animal was an older male that was beyond breeding age and had been attacking younger giraffes. She also has a mother and baby giraffe that were donated by a zoo after they died of natural causes. Amy enjoys sharing her collection, especially with kids. They just come in here and they're like, wow, mom and dad, what's that? What's that? And it really gets you more up close than you would even in most zoos. And, you know, how many kids get to pet a baby giraffe? Amy says she's constantly looking for new ways to expand her craft. More active poses, more detailed scenery. She says part of the pleasure for her is the transformation. Like when she turned that snakeskin she found on the side of the road into an eye-catching belt. I think uh, the, the fascination with just thinking, wow, that would have just been thrown away and I have done something with something that would have rotted. And, and maybe that's why I like taxidermy so much, the idea that you can make something from nothing. For Amy, it's more than just preserving animals. She enjoys sharing this art form, whether it's with her clients or with people who just stop by to marvel at her studio. For Inside Appalachia... This is Margaret McLeod Leaf in Yadkin County, North Carolina. You've probably seen pottery with a face on it somewhere. Maybe a decorative teapot done up like a stern Uncle Sam, or an elongated milk bottle with a sculpted face that looks a little like your brother-in-law. There's lots of examples of this type of art out there, from cheap souvenir shop knickknacks to museum-quality pieces that can sell for millions of dollars. Some are connected to African face jugs, an art that enslaved people brought with them to America. Folkways reporter Zach Harold traced the story of face jugs, beginning in the basement pottery studio of West Virginia artist Ed Klemek. The tools of Ed Klemek's trade look something like what you'd find on a dentist tray, but that's not what he uses them for. Uh, these I can slice the eyeballs in half. Um, this one I can put like in the um, corner of the eye and the mouth, maybe separate the teeth a little bit. Now that makes him sound like some kind of homespun Dr. Frankenstein, but Ed prefers to work in clay. 
For over 20 years, his Shinson West Virginia Pottery Studio has been churning out all kinds of creatures. Some look like Santa Claus or gray man-style aliens. It also has a penchant for making devils. I almost like that guy right there. He's smiling, right? <laughs> Did you don't know why he's smiling? <laughs> These characters appear on hand-thrown ceramic jugs, about the size of your standard two-gallon milk jug. Ed makes faces on coffee mugs and cookie jars, too, and shot glasses, though due to their size, they only have one facial feature apiece, a nose, some lips, or a single unblinking eye. So, you know, you have a drink with a friend, you say, here's looking at you. Ed's face jugs, sold under the name Jughead Pottery, are well-known in the West Virginia art scene. He's been featured in galleries all over and was juried into the state-run Tamarack market, where collectors regularly snatch up his work. But Ed's journey to becoming a successful full-time artist was a long one. Growing up and then as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, he tried his hand at different art forms, painting, silversmithing, wood carving. Then came the Vietnam War, which derailed his plans for grad school. He ended up spending eight years in the Air Force, working much of that time as an illustrator. Once his enlistment was up, art remained a hobby as he worked a series of blue-collar jobs as a carpenter, a window installer, and finally as a pattern maker at a foundry in Fairmont, West Virginia. About 20 years ago, news came that the foundry was shutting down. Ed was laid off. But instead of looking for another nine-to-five, his wife encouraged him to try the art thing full-time. She told me, she said, if you don't know until you try it, so go for it, dummy. <laughs> so I did. It was a little bit of a struggle beginning, you know. I mean, you know, it takes time to get a, a business started. At the time, Ed was working with Raku, a traditional Japanese style of pottery. But there wasn't a whole lot of interest in his work. Then he saw a TV program by the interior designer Lynette Jennings. I forget what the name of the program was, but it was uh, about home decorating. And uh, she had a thing on there about... Uh, Face jugs being very popular and collectible is a southern thing. Inspired by that program, Ed started to make face jugs of his own. But as he'd learned, the vessels were more than just a southern thing. The art form has roots in Africa, having crossed the Atlantic in the minds and hands of enslaved people. In fact, we can pretty much trace the tradition to a single slave ship, as historian Wayne O'Brien told me. So in 1808, you were not supposed to bring any more enslaved Africans from Africa. Well, in 1858, 50 years later, a gentleman named Charles Lamar decided he wanted to reopen the slave trade. And he said, catch me if you can. Lamar found himself a racing yacht dubbed the Wanderer and set out for Africa. So he, he sailed over to uh, the Congo in West Africa in 1858, took about 400 um, Africans on board brought them back to the U.S. Uh, the authorities did hear about it, but he outran them to the coast. Lamar landed on Jekyll Island in Georgia. But even after escaping authorities, he had a big problem. He was in possession of dozens of people who did not speak English, had never had any contact with the West. It was obvious that they had been illegally trafficked, so he needed to disperse these enslaved people fast. A cousin took some of them up the Savannah River into South Carolina, eventually ending up in Edgefield County. Then, as now, the area was known for its potteries. Many of the people Lamar smuggled ended up making ceramics. And in their off hours, they started making traditional vessels from their homeland. Somebody actually recorded that these Africans that just landed here are making these face, these grotesque face vessels. They call them face jugs. Almost all of these face vessels date to that time, after that time. After 1858. One prominent feature of these jugs was their stark white teeth and eyes. These were made from kaolin, a white silica clay also used to make fine china. The enslaved potters recognized it because they had it back home in Africa, too. And in the Af on the African uh, continent, that is the ingredient that gives the vessel power. See, no one was selling face jugs at the time. These were meant for personal use in spiritual rituals. Uh, these practitioners can reach to the spiritual world to get information. 
and they would use these objects uh, kind of as a tool. And those kaolin eyes and teeth were essential for those practices. The kaolin would be the battery in your phone. So without a battery, the phone would, you still have the object, but it won't work without the battery. The power was largely cut off following the Civil War. Pottery is an expensive craft, and after the war, many black potters lost access to the materials they needed to make their art. White potters, meanwhile, saw the popularity of the face jugs and appropriated the art form. They started making the vessels to sell to tourists who came to see the post-war South. Well, you know how they say uh, the sincerest form of flattery is imitation. But once the art form was out of black potters' hands, the history of face jugs as sacred objects started to be forgotten. Stories still circulate that the vessels were used to scare kids away from the beer or moonshine kept inside, even though enslaved people weren't usually allowed to have alcohol. The traditions were not lost completely, though. I mean, if black potters and their face jug traditions could survive the Middle Passage and slavery, they could survive anything. Today, the black face jug tradition lives on through a new generation of potters, like Jim McDowell of Weaverville, North Carolina. Jim grew up hearing stories about face jugs. And my granddaddy was a tombstone maker down, down in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. And he started telling us about face jugs. There was an ancestor in our family, and she, they said she made face jugs. It was a family history, oral history. Though he displayed artistic talent from an early age, Jim didn't take up pottery until he joined the Army and was stationed in Germany, where he started hanging out at a pottery studio in Nuremberg. He continued to study the art form back in the States. I was at this university in uh, Pennsylvania, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. It was a white guy making face jokes. And I looked at that thing and I said, no, I think I, could, I, think I need to make it myself. So I started making them, but I put black features on it, you know, the scarification, the, the, uh, the big noses, you know, exaggerated and ears and, and use uh, glass for teeth or broken china plates, you know. Unlike Ed Clemmick's face jugs, with their realistic, if exaggerated looking faces, the features of Jim McDowell's jugs are rougher, more reminiscent of the look of the original Edgefield face jugs. He once told the Smithsonian, my jugs are ugly because slavery was ugly. I, I don't have any preconceived notions of what I'm going to make. I have an idea like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King or John Lewis. I look, I put that, I think that thought is there. But when I put the nose on, then I feel like I get influences from the ancestors and I do certain things that, that maybe I don't even realize. I, I'm, I'm versed in pottery as far as aesthetics and how to put it together. But the ideas, they, come, they don't come from me. Jim feels a particular kinship with David Drake, an enslaved Edgefield potter whose work now sells for millions of dollars and was recently featured in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. But his plots are still here because the writings reflect what he was going through. You heard that right. In a time where it was illegal to teach enslaved people how to read and write, Dave was making inscriptions on his pottery. And not just inscriptions, but poetry. Clever, funny, heartbreaking poetry inspired by what was happening in his life. After Dave's master sold his son and wife to another slave owner in Texas, he inscribed a pot with this couplet, I wonder where is all my relations, friendship to all and every nation. He was pissed. Jim tries to channel his own frustration and anger into his face jugs. Some of his recent works have been inspired by the murders of Emmett Till and George Floyd. I do it because if I don't do it, I feel like this story is going to die. Somebody has to tell, you know, even though people may not want to listen. For someone with such a deep spiritual connection to this art, I asked Jim how he felt about the history of white potters co-opting it. I really don't. I'll be honest with you. I really don't have a problem with it. He says he doesn't begrudge white potters who make face jugs because, well, everybody's got to make a living. And there are European traditions of ceramic vessels with faces on them. But remember what Wayne O'Brien told us. A traditional face jug without kaolin is like a phone without a charge. No power. Just an object. 
Well, to Jim, a modern face jug that isn't shaped by the black experience is kind of like that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine to look at. It just doesn't have the same power. They cannot put the spirit and the, the ideas and the thoughts that I had because they don't have that history. Their history is from England or Scotland or over there, you know. So I don't, I, don't, I don't quibble on it because you can't copy me. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold. Through 2023, we aired 25 stories from the Folkways Reporting Project. There are more than 150 Folkways stories archived online, along with pictures and links to more information. You can check it out on our website, wvpublic.org. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Dirty River Boys, Gnome Pickleney, Carolina Chocolate Drops, Carpenter Ants, and Alan Cathead Johnston. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.